0: The book of Mark was written just as the apostles of our Lord were dying off and just as uh, the first generation of eyewitnesses were dying off. And and Mark wrote his gospel in in order to preserve uh, what the real Jesus really did and what he really said. It was written for future generations to know. It was written for us so that we would have an authoritative place to go to grapple with the question, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And that's precisely what we've been doing as a community over the past few weeks. Uh, Two themes have emerged and have been woven into the tapestry of Mark's gospel so far. And these are themes that will occur over and over again. Uh, The first is this. Jesus came fundamentally to preach the word, to preach about the kingdom of God. And when he does so, the kingdom appears in our midst. Bodies are mended. Demons are expelled. People's lives are totally realigned. But the second theme is uh, that Jesus has an uncommon authority, an authority like no one else, and even his worst critics recognize this about him. And in our passage today, Mark 2, verses 1 through 12, uh, we see these two themes interact and come to the forefront in the face of our deepest need. These themes speak to our deepest need. And we know needs, right? Can you name your need? Can you name it? Uh, Do you know what it is? I can tell you one of your needs. I can just tell by looking at you. You need more bacon. You you just need more bacon in your life. Uh, All right, no one's ready to joke yet. (laughs) Well, calm down. Now, some needs, they're easy to meet. right? If I want bacon, I know where to get it. Some needs, they're harder to meet. And some needs seem next to impossible to meet. But amidst all of our legitimate or illegitimate needs, do you know what your deepest need is? And if that need could be met, What would life look like for you? The problem is we don't always know what our deepest need is. We can confuse our wants with our needs and our lesser needs for our deeper needs, which is why Jesus came to preach about the kingdom of God, so that we might truly see what our deepest need is. So here's the big idea today. Jesus came as our physician to use his authority to address our deepest need. And because of his authority, only he can identify what our deepest need actually is. And in order to see that, we're going to look at three things this morning. A misdiagnosis, our physician, and two quagmires. So let's start with a misdiagnosis. Open your Bible with me uh, to Mark chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Have you ever eaten at one of these restaurants? The Templeton? No? Red Rigan? Mm-hmm? Or Jethro's? Right. Now, <laughs> these are definitively the best places to have breakfast in town, hands down. You could maybe add a few, but these are the top three. And uh, have you ever tried to go to one of these places on a Saturday morning, but showed up late? You know what happens. There's a line out the door. You can't even get to the door. Sometimes there's a two hour wait. And uh, it's frustrating because you know what you need. You don't just need breakfast. No, no, no. You need barbecue pulled pork on buttermilk pancakes covered in bourbon maple syrup. That's what you came for. That's what you need. Uh, And there's people, just legions of people standing between you and your need being met. Now imagine a bigger need in your life. Uh, Maybe you have questions about God that you've yet to find a satisfying answer to. Maybe you're stuck in a pattern that is is self-destruction, or self-destructive and you need help. Or Maybe you have a physical illness that robs you of the vibrancy of life that you had hoped to have. And imagine you hear of a man uh, who is teaching new things about God with an uncommon authority. You hear of Jesus of Nazareth and the sick are being made well in his presence. You hear of someone who can meet this legitimate need in your life, but you can't get to him because of a massive crowd. Lots and lots of people are in line to see him before you. In our passage today, Jesus returns to Capernaum. His reputation has grown and so many people are gathered to see Jesus that there wasn't even room at the door. And what's Jesus doing? He's doing what he came to do. He's preaching the word. He's preaching about the kingdom of God. And yes, people want to hear about that, but they really want to be healed. And entering into the scene are four men, and they're tired and they're probably sweaty because they have the burden of carrying their friend on his bed to see Jesus. And their friend, he's paralyzed. And they're bringing him to see Jesus because they've heard that this man can make their friend well. And we have to remember, the man who's paralyzed lived in a very different place in time than we do. You know, buildings weren't wheelchair accessible because wheelchairs didn't exist. He was utterly dependent upon uh, friends uh, in order to function and survive. You know, There was no such thing as government benefits for people who were uh, you know, vulnerable or poor. And so he depended entirely on family provision, provision financially. Uh, but this man, he has some good friends who are willing to carry him, to get him to Jesus. And when they arrive, however, they can't make it through the crowd. They can't even get to the door. the question is, will they be paralyzed like their friend? Because they're unable to advance any closer to Jesus. These guys are determined. They tear open the roof. You're like, raise a roof. You know, like these guys, they tear open the roof. Think about that. It would be like someone drilling through this ceiling into this space. You know, dust and fibers just everywhere, noise and falling debris. Confusion would ensue. Everyone would look up. I would stop talking. And our eyes would be fixed on this event. What is happening? The crowd sees all of this, and then surely they look to Jesus. What is Jesus going to say? Verse 5, Jesus sees their faith and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. What? You know, this would be a little embarrassing if you thought Jesus was a prophet. Like, Jesus, I think you've misdiagnosed this guy here. Surely the paralyzed man would say to Jesus, I have a more immediate problem here, Jesus. And Jesus would say, no, you don't. No, you don't. I have not misdiagnosed you. I realize that in our modern day context in, a, in an urban center like Vancouver, what I'm about to say is very left field. Our main problem is never our suffering, but our sin. Our main problem is never our suffering, but our sin. It's out there because our city has a very odd relationship with sin. On the one hand, we have a preoccupation with it, especially if it takes place in the public eye. A scandal happens, a politician is dirty, or a public figure does something terrible to someone well then, we're happy to admit, they've sinned. And by and large, their sin is not forgivable. It's condemnable. Remove them from office. You know, make sure that they never have any more career opportunities. Hit them with as much consequence, with as much force as you possibly can. We see this rhetoric all the time in our society. But on the other hand, when we consider the everyday average person, they're really not all that bad. You know, sure, we might make some mistakes, but that hardly constitutes sins or the need for divine forgiveness. And if we do need forgiveness, we kind of treat it like, well, I just need to forgive myself. You know? or, or we say, well, I might need forgiveness from someone else. But uh, forgive and forget is the mantra of our day. But in our culture in particular, the emphasis falls on forget. We're so over-inundated with people saying, I'm sorry, that it just doesn't mean anything anymore. I was literally just standing, and someone walked in front of me, and they said, sorry for walking in front of me. What did you do wrong? Just please tell me what you did wrong. And what do we say, though, when this happens? Don't worry about it. You know, we brush off apologies as unnecessary. And so we have a very odd relationship with sin in our culture. Uh, We either consider the big stuff unforgivable or the little stuff not really warranting forgiveness at all. Most of the people in this room and and most of the people in our city uh, would agree that we have far more pressing needs than forgiveness of sins. Why is Jesus so concerned with sin, especially when there are so many important human needs out there? We need our bills paid. You know, If Jesus could help me pay my bills, that would be awesome. We need food on our table. We need debt relief. We need our health restored. We need shelter for the homeless. We need better policies and laws that protect the vulnerable. We need more sustainable energies. We could easily say, come on, Jesus. We have more pressing needs than being forgiven. And again, Jesus would say, no, you don't. No, you don't. Because he's driving us deeper. He wants us to see our deepest need. With this paralyzed man, Jesus will go on to heal him. We'll get to that. But he doesn't do that until his deepest need is first addressed. Why is that? Because like most of us, this man is likely living by a false narrative. He probably spent his days often thinking, if only I could walk, if only I could walk, then everything would be all right that would be great. It would change his life. But give him two months or give him four months or a little longer, and we all know what would happen. Discontentment would slowly set back in. Monotony would uh, uh, creep back into his life. A new pressing need would emerge, and until he meets that need, he wouldn't be content. He wouldn't be satisfied. See, even when our needs are met, even if they are legitimate needs, they don't provide what we thought they would provide. Because there's a deeper need underneath even the most legitimate needs in our lives. Jack Higgins, he's a novelist. He writes, uh, you know, crime novels, and he's hugely successful. He's written about 70 books, most of which have been on the bestseller list. And, um, you know, in terms of being an author, this guy's arrived. And he was interviewed on the radio. I think it was the BBC. And the interview, the interviewer asked him a you know, really, really great question. He Said if you could go back and talk to your 18-year-old self, what would you say? That's a great question. You know, what would you say to your 18-year-old self? I would tell myself to stop being so emo. Uh, And (laughs) anyways, here's what uh, Jack Higgins said. This is what Jack said. When you get to the top, there will be nothing there. Nothing at all. Higgins is admitting that he lived by the narrative, once I'm a successful writer, then everything will be right. What's your narrative? A lot of students here, maybe it's, uh, once I have my, my degree, then everything will be good. Actually, scratch that. Once I have my degree and get a job, you know, then everything will be good. No, scratch that, because we're millennials too. Once I have my degree and get a job that I find satisfying and <laughs> fulfilling, then everything will be all right. Done. Once I'm in a relationship, then everything will be good. Once my work is recognized, no matter what your work may be, and it's celebrated then everything will be good. Everything will be all right. Once I get my health in check, lose those five pounds, or uh, get everything in order in my personal life, then everything will be good. But Jack Higgins arrived only to discover nothing at all. He's reminding us all that the things we think we need, no matter how legitimate they may be, cannot deliver the contentment and peace and fulfillment we're hoping for. Because the roots of our discontent go much deeper. If we come to Jesus for our lesser needs before addressing our deeper need, we're actually treating him like a self-help agent. We're saying, dispense enough help to me, Jesus, so that I can help myself, so that I don't really have to depend on you. And This is why Jesus wants us to go deeper. If we don't, we'll miss the point. And this is why Jesus goes deeper with the paralyzed man. Jesus hasn't misdiagnosed him, and he hasn't misdiagnosed us. The problem is that we misdiagnose ourselves. We don't actually know what our deepest need is, and we often deny what it is, and that's why Jesus takes us deeper. He wants us to see that we need our sins to be forgiven. Which leads us to our second point, our physician. Our physician. Why should we trust his diagnosis? Furthermore, why should we trust that he even has the remedy to his diagnosis? You know, we're so used to hearing, Jesus forgives sins, I think we missed the offense. If you look at verses 6 and 7, it's very telling. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus... uh, I don't need to read that part yet. Backtrack. (laughs) Who can forgive sins but God alone? Uh, Do you notice the religious elites, the scribes... um, They take offense. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus has no business declaring someone's sins forgiven. He's blaspheming. He's acting like God. And honestly, we take just as much offense. Now, it may not be on religious grounds. I mean, some of you might take offense on religious grounds. But we certainly take offense at the level of authority that Jesus is claiming. Imagine if uh, Roger... Uh, Our southern gentleman, Bub, our South African English representative, and me, a Canadian without guile, uh, walk into a bar. Um, Okay, not a bar, a a church. We walk into a room. And uh, immediately, for no reason, other than being a huge fan of the Three Stooges, which is true, Bub pokes Roger in the eyes, just boom, and Roger starts crying, you know, like it's just tears gushing down. And, and Roger, he's saying, like, I'm not crying. It's just the, my natural reaction. I'm not crying. And it's just getting awkward because you know he's crying, but he's denying it. Now, imagine if I walked up to Bob and I said, son, your sins are forgiven. Bub could easily say, like, what business do you have forgiving my sins? And just poke me in the eye. Uh, Likewise, Roger could say, like, who are you to forgive sins on my behalf? This is between Bub and I. That's the issue in this passage, isn't it? Who is Jesus to claim this sort of authority? Look at verses 8 through 11. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before all of them, so they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. For now, I just want to focus on verse 10 because it's the key to the questions we're asking. Why should we trust Jesus' diagnosis? Why should we trust that Jesus has the remedy? And verse 10 is the key to this passage as a whole. So look at it, verse 10. But that you may know, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. How do we know that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins? Well, On the one hand, it will be uh, the miracle that he's about to perform, and we're going to look at that. But we also know that he has authority to forgive sins because he's the son of man. And this is a new title in Mark's gospel. So far, we've been told that Jesus is the son of God. He's God in person. Uh, The demon shouted out that he's the holy one of God. And now Mark tells us that Jesus is the son of man. And this is a title that Jesus uses often about himself in all of the Gospels. It's one of his favorite self-designations. And a lot can be said about what is the Son of Man. But I want to draw your attention to one verse in particular because I think it's the verse that Mark has in mind and that Jesus has in mind. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Daniel, he's a prophet, and he says, I saw in the night visions, God speaking to him. "And, And behold, with clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is the one Daniel saw. God the Father, the Ancient of Days, has given All dominion and glory to one like a son of man. He's like a son of man because he's the son of God, but he's also a son of man. He's fully God and fully human. Two natures, but in one person, indivisible. And, And God the Father has given him an everlasting kingdom with all authority and dominion. And so Jesus has authority to forgive sins, not just because he's God in the flesh, but also because God the Father sent him into the world to exercise his authority as an example of the kingdom that is to come. And so he came to earth for this very purpose. And this is important in the development of this theme of Jesus' authority. So far, we've just been told that Jesus has authority, and we've seen it on display. But now, we hear explicitly from Jesus that the reason he came and how he's going to exercise his authority is the forgiveness of sins. The most powerful expression of his authority will be the forgiveness of sins. The scribes, they're so caught up in their religious dogma. They're so caught up in their offense that they miss that God is standing right in front of them. They're they're so cynical that they, they miss seeing the scriptures that they've spent their lives studying being fulfilled before their very eyes. And it keeps them from addressing their deepest need and their need to be forgiven by Jesus. But we also miss it. You know, we're so skeptical towards the language of sin, we're so hardened towards the idea that our lives might need forgiving that we miss what Jesus is actually offering. You know, part of the problem is we get caught up in a a caricature of God. You know, God's just a cranky old man in the sky uh, wagging his finger at, you know, bad, bad sinners, taking his cosmic microscope, examining the earth for any and everything that could be going wrong. But this is hardly why Jesus came to forgive sins. The issue isn't just that sin is bad. Don't get me wrong, sin is morally reprehensible. All of our sins are actually committed against God, no matter who we sin against or what we do. And this is an offense to God. Don't get me wrong. But the fundamental issue is relational. Jesus came to forgive sins because it's our sins that separate us from God. It's our sins that impede us from having a healthy, functional, life-giving, love-receiving relationship with our Creator. And unless our sins are dealt with, that fundamental issue... We cannot have a relationship with God and we will never find our deepest need being met. Because our physician is the only one who can uh, remedy our deepest need. He's the only one who can assuage our deepest need. He's the only one with the authority to forgive sins and he's the only one who can actually do it. But this leads us back to the question. Can we trust his diagnosis? Is forgiveness from God really our deepest need? Is that really it. That's it. I just need forgiveness. Unconsciously, I think we've developed you know, a deep resistance uh, toward people telling us what our needs are. Because we're bombarded with this sort of messaging every day. You want more control in your life? You need the Apple Watch. You know, do you want to stand in a different social class? Get the Lexus, baby. Do you want more satisfaction? Preacher might have told you to buy bacon. You know, but advertising generalizes. You know, it doesn't actually Speak to us personally. But when you're a kid and your parents say, you're filthy, you need a bath, uh, they know what they're talking about even if you don't agree. If your best friend comes up and pats you on the stomach and says, you need to lay off the soda pop, thanks, bub, uh, (laughs) they probably know what they're talking about even if you don't agree. Uh, You can trust them because of who they are. We don't trust advertisers, but we do trust those who know us best. Because sometimes they know us better than we know ourselves. If Jesus is just a miracle worker, no. We can't trust his diagnosis. If he's just a religious teacher, no. It's just another sales pitch. But if he's God in the flesh, then yes, we can trust him. We can trust his diagnosis. We're talking about the one who fashioned your soul. The one who knows your thoughts and desires before they're even upon your mind or heart. He knows us through and through, and he knows our deepest desire. We want a satisfying life. We want a fulfilling life. We want a meaningful life. We want peace, and we want contentment, and we want balance, and we want acceptance above all things, and we want to be loved. And we know these things are fleeting. We know that they come and go. And so we feel we need something. We need anything that can bring these things to us. And the only person who can actually give us the life we're searching for, the the life we're hoping for, the life we wish for is God himself. So we can trust our physician's diagnosis because he's the son of God. He knows you. And we can trust that he has the remedy because he's the son of man. He has all authority. Now on to our last point. point, two quagmires, and they're not from the family Guy. don't worry. There are two issues that we need to address. The first is this. This man is forgiven, but there's no sign of repentance. None. All throughout the scriptures, uh, forgiveness and repentance are intertwined. You're forgi- you, you repent, and then you're forgiven. Uh, but in this passage, he didn't even come to Jesus for forgiveness. He didn't ask for it. Jesus just declares it. And so, Is this passage contradicting the rest of Scripture? No. Mark, I think, is giving us a little hint in verse 8. Jesus can read the motives of the heart. He knows what the scribes are thinking. He knows what you're thinking. He can read you. Tim Keller says this about it. He says, In this man there must have been some inarticulate heart desire for mercy and grace. And Jesus Christ is so gracious and so eager to pour out his grace on us and to embrace us and receive us and pardon us that he even responds to fragmentary and imperfect expressions of need in our heart that aren't even expressed. That's how eager Jesus is to pour his grace out on us. Or put differently, Jesus Christ is aggressive with his grace. He comes at you and pours his grace into you. Even if you give him the slightest openings, in fact, he'll even create his own openings. Because faith, real saving faith, is always a gift. The man wasn't trying to believe. He wasn't trying to find forgiveness. He wasn't trying to find grace. And Jesus comes after him. If he had a hard heart, no. You know, Jesus wouldn't have done it. But Jesus is so eager to receive us and help and love us that he even creates the openings. Faith ultimately is not a virtue. It's a gift. Faith is not a virtue. It's a gift. Jesus will find an opening when you're not looking for it, and he'll go after you with his grace, and he'll make it possible for you to believe. Now, maybe you're someone here who's been wrestling with faith, and you can't seem to muster up. No matter how much you learn, you just can't seem to Cross that line. You might even find Jesus appealing. You might find benefit from being in a spiritual community. But faith, you just don't get. You've been trying and it's not happening. Well, stop looking in here and go to Jesus and say, help me believe. So wait, you're saying if I ask Jesus for faith, he'll give it to me. I'm saying if you ask Jesus for faith, you'll see that he's been after you for years and you didn't at first see it. Whenever you go to him and say, you're the one I've been looking for. You're the one who gives faith. I've been trying to muster it up. I've been trying to reason my way into it. I've been trying to find the most logical way to take that leap. Give me faith. Grant me faith. Help my unbelief. He'll give you faith because he's the author of faith. Which means there's an implication for those of you who already believe, no no matter how long you've called yourself a Christian. Just because you believe, that doesn't mean you can look down on someone who believes less than you. Because faith is always a gift, and you wouldn't believe what you do believe unless God opened your eyes and gave you faith and grace to recognize him. And so faith should breed humility when we look at those who are struggling with questions of faith. Never superiority. And now the second quagmire Jesus asked the question which is easier? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Sounds like a straightforward question, but it really isn't, is it? Over the past 2,000 years, church fathers and scholars have been writing ample about this, and so we're going to settle it ourselves. Uh, Class, which is easier? You know, to say your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed and walk. Sins are forgiven. Who thinks that? Which is easier? Oh, wow. Okay, and rise, take up your bed and walk. (laughs) No audience participation today. Uh, I don't even know what you think. It's easier, of course, to say your sins are forgiven, whether or not that's true. But to heal a paralytic, that's much, much harder. And in a way, yes, since Jesus can do the harder thing, heal the paralytic, he can do the seemingly easier thing, forgive sins. Yet, how Jesus forgives sins is infinitely harder than the healing of the paralytic. Think about it. The paralytic, he regains his body as a sign for all, a sign that proves Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. That's why Jesus did it. But Jesus gives up his body to the cross. He allows his body to be utterly broken in a way. He is paralyzed as he is nailed to that tree as a sign for us all a sign that shows us that he actually backs up what he says that forgiveness is not mere words with him but action. Jesus will do what it takes. He will give his life so that he can so that we can be forgiven. And our physician, he does not offer forgiveness remotely. He doesn't just say pleasant words that carry no substance. He offers forgiveness personally. He bears the cost. He becomes our sin on the cross, which means he becomes my sin and he becomes your sin. And as he says to this man, son, your sins are forgiven. It's not a general forgiveness that's happening on the cross. It's specific to each of us. So when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, we can believe it because he dealt with it on the cross. And so when Jesus says it is finished and he takes his last breath and he dies for us, We can trust that nothing stands between us and God, and nothing stands between us and our deepest need being met. Because our sins have been forgiven, and this is precisely what we need. This truly is our deepest desire, because it's only by accepting forgiveness from Jesus that we find the acceptance we long for, the love that we crave, the contentment nothing else can offer, because what we've been searching for all along is Him. He's who we've needed. He's who we've been missing, and our sin has blinded us to that, and the forgiveness opens up our eyes and restores us to a loving relationship with an eternal creator who wants nothing more than to bless us and receive us into his kingdom. And when you experience this, when it gets inside of you, when you receive this forgiveness, there is as much joy as a paralytic man walking again for the first time. And it's only by seeing what profound love Jesus has for us, how far he's willing to go to embrace us, what he's willing to sacrifice for us to meet our deepest need that we then find ourselves contrite and desiring what he offers. And when we really see what he did and how he pursues us and how he even creates openings in our lives to respond to him, we will relish in the fact that faith is a gift And that forgiveness is free. So if you want it, ask for it. If you want it, tear open the roof if you have to to find it. And if you have it, thank him for it. Thank him for it.